Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, join with everybody saying I'm glad to be back with you guys. I hate canceling church. Um, so it was it's always a tough call. Last week was a tough call to, uh, to not be together. I want you to know that I will always be very slow to do that. But uh, I think we, overall we made the right decision. And I have a funny feeling it might have just been me up here preaching the empty chairs anyway. Um, but uh, I did miss our time together. Today is January 14th. Two weeks ago when we were here, I told you by January 12th, most, pe most people have given up their New Year's traditions, or right, their New Year's resolutions. I picked up one since we last met. I just want to give you this quickly, and then I'm going to move on to today's talk. Um, trying to figure out a new way to study the scriptures. And so I found a little app called dailyaudiobible.com. Daily Does anybody do dailyaudiobible.com? If you don't... Um, this is a great way to just pop your headphones in, drive to work, or whatever, and hear the scriptures. It's hosted by this man that named Chris, and every day when he gets done reading the scriptures to me, he goes, I love you. And I actually believe this man loves me. Um, and so if you're looking to have a cup of coffee with uh, your grandfather and have him read the scriptures and then briefly describe what you're hearing, um, daily, dailyaudiobible.com. Uh, and I caught all the way up in one week, so I am now on Target with Daily Audio Bible. We talked about setting aside that time every week, 15 minutes in a chair. Daily, DailyAudioBible.com can be your partner in that. And by the way, I'm getting no money for this plug. Today, we are on a, uh, we kick off an 11-week journey that's going to culminate together in this room on Easter Sunday with the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. I need to take this journey. It's necessary for me, and I hope um, uh, that you'll find it beneficial for you because I'm going to drag you along with me. Um, that is, if you dare to keep coming. Um, I'll explain why in a second. It's necessary for me because of a couple of psychological phenomena that I actually had to look up this week to figure out what my problem is. And there's actually a lot of psychological phenomena that are my problem. But uh, I came across two that are specific to why I want to do what we're going to do over the next 11 weeks. One is called habituation. Habituation, the simplest definition for it, is it is the diminishing of a psychological, physiological, or emotional response to frequently repeated stimuli. For example, right, um, you, you might be startled the first time you hear the lang loud bang on your neighbor's door. But after hearing it repeatedly over weeks, you become less responsive to the sound. You, you almost ignore it. Habituation is what allows Joan to sleep next to me for all of these years with my ridiculous snoring, right? She doesn't even hear it anymore. To her, it's just the sweet sounds of a good night, right? It's why we live in Long Valley and Mendham and Chester and Randolph. And it is so, I mean, you ever have friends come from out of town? They're like, it is, I, my brother came up here with his girlfriend and driving around, she's like, it is stunning here. We don't even see it anymore. Habituation, right? The other issue that I hope um, to battle together over these weeks is something called semantic satiation. Again, the definition is it's a phenomena in which repetition causes a word or a phrase to temporarily lose its meaning for the listener. It's possible to hear something so much that it loses its, its value and its importance. What was once, the first time you heard it, maybe so shocking or surprising or moving, it no longer even gives us any pause. So here's my thesis that's going to underpin the 11 weeks, um, this 11-week experiment, if you will. I believe for me, and, and may, maybe for many of you, no matter where you are on the faith spectrum, long-time follower of Jesus or just dipping your toe into faith, I think there's a good chance that you and I suffer from habituation and semantic saturation when it comes to Jesus Christ. It might not have been a true gospel representation of the fact, but our culture just finished the Christmas season. At least 60 days worth of celebrating, and again, a very secular culture celebrating the birth of Jesus. We've grown up in it. We've, we've lived in the Western world our entire lives. Our entire worldview is predicated on the values of a Western world system. It's perspective on things from individual rights to morality. They have all been impacted forget impact, these Western values have almost all originated with this one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, 
because we're just so saturated in them, hardly any of us even pause. Well, at Christmas time, when maybe you hear, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Heard it a million times, but it loses its value. Yet, since we're so saturated in Jesus, most of the time, we don't even realize what's happening around us. For example, the, the calendar is based off of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Most of us have lost sight. Mike just said it. He didn't know I was going to be talking about this this morning. But most of us, and, and this is why Mike and I talk about it, most of us have, uh, have lost the real Jesus, who he actually was, what his gospel was, that he was a living, breathing human being, fully God, fully man, we, we, we kind of miss what it is that he came to, to live out and proclaim. And so much of our faith then, it winds up being products of our culture or, or, or our family or, or theological teachings. And surprisingly, and I think, I, I hope you'll see this along the way, more often than not, many of those things are not all that accurate. And so what I want to do over the coming weeks is look at Jesus with fresh eyes, unadulterated by our past views, presuppositions, our upbringing, our biases. And I have to warn you, this is why you might not enjoy the series. Uh, he is likely not who you think he is. We just sang about this, right? Um, break down the walls of all my religion, shake up the ground of more, all my traditions, your way is better. It is, but it's not easy to have religions and shaken and traditions torn down. I, uh, I've shared this story before many years ago. I mean, Jesus is a very, very radical person. And so a bunch of years ago, when I first became the lead pastor of the church, I went to the elders and I said, I, I want to give you the book of Mark and I want you just to read this. And I want you to pretend you're on a desert island. You don't know anything about anybody. You've never heard the name Jesus before. I want you to read this and I want you to come back and tell me who he is. And so we got back together the next month and... Uh, I would say maybe the, 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 the most theologically um, trained of the elders, the, most, the one that, that maybe had the greatest scripture knowledge, he looked at me, he goes, I don't even know what it is I believe anymore. Because that's how steeped we get in all of the other things. And when all of a sudden you strip it all away and you go, who is he? Here it is. Who is he? You go, hmm, he might not be who I thought he was, right? Here's the other troubling thing. He might not be who you want him to be. But, I'll tell you this, right? As God the Father proclaimed to Moses, when Moses said, can you tell me your name? I'd like to know you by name, right? He said, I am who I am. I'm here to proclaim to you this morning. He is who he is, and he is more wonderful and powerful and truthful and graceful and loving than you could ever have imagined or hoped for. And so there is my fair warning as we start out on a little 11-week journey there in search of Jesus and his news and his kingdom. And so we're going to pick up, if you were with us along the way at Christmas time, we're going to pick up where we left off, having journeyed over the Christmas season in search of the real Mary of Nazareth. We've looked at the birth of Jesus. We even followed him up through his, his childhood. If you remember when Mary and Joseph found him, well, first they left him, right, in, in Jerusalem and made their way halfway home and, and in kind of a first century home alone moment, right, Mary realizes, I thought you had him. And they go back, uh, and they find Jesus in the temple, right? And Jesus tells them, well, well, you should have expected to find me here in my Father's house. Many theologians believe that that's likely the moment when Jesus fully became aware of his divinity. That, in a sense, Joseph wasn't his father, that God was his father, his actual father. It's for that reason, many churches choose to confirm young people at the age of 12, because that was the age of Jesus in the temple. Then, right, if you know the story, Jesus goes home with Mary and Joseph back to Nazareth. Now, because I want to make this story real and strip away the religion from all of it, strip away all the cultural teachings, I, there's going to be a little bit of history provided in this. I hope you like that. M my mind runs that way. So I'm going to show you a map. Um, here's a map of the Holy Land, okay? And so these ministry sites is actually a very cool map you can find online. And each of those sites is flashing, and you can roll over each one, and it tells you what happened there. These are all the different sites of Jesus' ministry. Nazareth is up there in the north. I, can't, I know you can't see it, but Nazareth is up on the northern part of the map to the west of what's that lake up there, which is the Sea of Galilee. 
Nazareth is way up there. That is where Jesus is from. That is Jesus' hometown. That's where Joseph and Mary are from. That's when the angel came to visit Mary. All that happened up there, right? They make the trip down to Bethlehem, which is down here to the left of the Dead Sea in the Judea section of the map. It's about 90 miles. That's where Jesus is born. It's likely a four-day journey from them. You know the story, right? All men had been taxed. They had to go back down to, for a census. They had to go back down for the census. They make their way back down um, to Jerusalem, uh, or excuse me, to Bethlehem for that. Now, if you know the story of the three kings coming to visit Jesus, um, uh, they tell Joseph that... Um, that the, the temple is looking to kill all of the children, looking to get Jesus because he's, 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 he's a threat. And so they flee to Egypt. So they leave. They either went back up to Nazareth or they leave the Judea region. And this is Egypt over here. So he, Jesus, for some amount of time, is over in Egypt. Then he makes his way back, right, to Nazareth, right? And then the annual trip was, once again, from Nazareth up in the Galilean region down to Jerusalem, down in this... This is around where Jerusalem is right there. Nazareth to Jerusalem. That was every year, annually every year, Jesus is making that pilgrimage for Passover. That's when he winds up in the temple saying, you should have known I'm in my father's house. That's where we are in the story, okay? Now, as far as we know, right, which is not very far, Jesus lives from that age of 12 in the temple to the age of 30, a somewhat unremarkable life. Why do I say unremarkable? Well, because the four men who wrote the canonized records of his life, none of the four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of them records any remarks about these years. And so here's where we pick up the story of Jesus today. All four of them, this is very interesting, all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all begin their story about Jesus and the ministry of Jesus at the same point. And that point is actually not with Jesus, who's now around 30. All four of the gospel writers, in one way or the other, begin their story about Jesus with his cousin, John, who's around the same age. Now, you may know nothing about the Bible or, or very little about Jesus, but you've probably heard of his cousin. You know him by his stage name, his professional name, John the Baptist. The Baptist, however, was not John's last name, he, right? He got the moniker because of what he was doing. It was so unusual at the time. In first century Israel, there was a concept. The Jewish people understood the concept of baptism. But for the Jews, the way it was taught to them is that baptism was reserved for Gentiles. If, that, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they would need to be baptized. It became a symbolic washing away of their old Gentile ways of their old Gentile sin, right? And, and the way they would get baptized is they would baptize themselves. That's how a Jew would convert to Judaism. Excuse me, a Gentile would convert to Judaism. He would baptize himself. He would wash himself. As far as we know, John is the first person ever to actually baptize someone else. To baptize not just someone else, but to baptize Jews. Thus the name, right? That's why he, the name stuck, because what he was doing was very unusual. But that's not all that made him stand out, nor is it the only reason that everyone, everyone in here, I can't see anything because these lights are on my face, but every, everyone in here has, if I asked you, raise your hand, I think all of you would say, I've heard of John the Baptist, right? Why? Why is he that famous? Why did all four Gospels, why didn't they start with Jesus? Why do all of them start with John the Baptist? And what was the, other than that kind of funky thing he was doing, what was the message? Well, here's the deal. Eight, 18 years, um, 18 years, oh, it's 18 years of silence. I'm wondering why I wrote in my own notes. After 18 years of silence, Jesus was 12 in the temple, now he's 30. We don't hear anything about him. All the Gospel writers pick up with John, right? Now, Jesus had a disciple, John. This is a different John. He would have been known in the day, as, by the way, as John, the son of Zebedee. John, the son of Zebedee, now a disciple of Jesus, is a very old man when he writes his account of, of Jesus' life, likely written about 70 years after the death of Jesus. John looks back on all that he had seen now as an old man, and here is how he describes what he saw. He goes, there was a man, John looking back, 
that was sent from God, whose name was John. Speak, now, John, the disciple, is speaking John of Zebedee, son of Zebedee, is speaking of John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John, John says, came as a witness to witness about Jesus, the light of the world. Interesting that John feels it necessary to note that John himself was not the light. John the Baptist was not the light. In fact, this is a claim you'll see in a minute that John would have to fight off over time. Because John, I don't, if you take anything away from this message, please get this. John got so famous. John the Baptist was such a big deal. I would argue that in the first century, he was a much bigger deal than John the disciple. John got so famous, right? Everybody began to think he was the Messiah. John, again, writing this, um, uh, while many, John, John um, son of Zebedee, writing this while there are still many witnesses of these events around, John wants to set the record straight that John the Baptist came as a witness to testify about Jesus, the light of the world, so that everyone might believe. Now you have Luke, right? Luke writes of John too. Of course he does. If you know the story of who Luke is, Luke is such a, uh, such a, a historian. He's this Greek physician that sets out to write a very orderly account of the life of Jesus. He, he wasn't an eyewitness, but he went out and did this thorough, uh, 20th century, 21st century historians will tell you that Luke is a first-rate historian. Well, there's no way a first-rate historian can tell the story of Jesus without starting with John because he was that big a deal. And so Luke writes it this way. He goes, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, who was Caesar Augustus' adopted son, was governor of Judea, Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was the tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, that's John the Baptist, in the wilderness. Why all this detail? Because Luke is a first-rate historian. He wants you to know, this is a big deal in this morning's talk, this really happened. It was a big deal. I'm going to get really specific so you can check this. He's almost inviting you to investigate it. Here's all the details. Look into it yourself. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, he had a firsthand record of these events. And how does he start his story about Jesus? With the introduction of John the Baptist. And he gives us a detail, again, right, for which John's reputation, in a sense, echoes to this day. If you know nothing about the Bible, you probably know who Jesus' cousin was. He was that famous. And you may know nothing about the Bible, but you probably have heard what he looked like and what he ate. Because if you ever went to Sunday school, somehow this is the story that almost all kids walk away with about John the Baptist. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Of course, we read this and we think, just like I did when I was a little boy, this is a weird dude, right? And that is likely true. But there is actually, and your Sunday school teacher probably didn't teach you this, there is actually some significance here relative to his clothes and to his diet. In terms of his clothes, John, again, was perceived by many to be, well, to be at the very minimum, the very least, a prophet. And his clothing was linking him to one of Israel's greatest prophets, Elijah, of whom it had been written, he wore a garment of hair cloth with a girdle of leather about his loins. So they're giving this detail. Matthew is making sure you understand this to under, so you understand that people are realizing, oh, this is a prophet. Actually, this guy reminds us of our great prophet, Elijah. And his diet, well, in the wilderness, you've got to make do with what you can make do. But others have argued this, quote, the food going into John's mouth represented the message coming out. Those who received John's message with faith would taste its sweetness and experience God's blessing like honey. Those who refused John's message would experience God's judgment like locusts. Here's the interesting thing about John and why I think all of the Gospels begin with him. John, 
in the first century, please enter the story. There are no newspapers. There are no books, no TV, no radio, no internet, no printing presses, no social media. John somehow becomes the first great social influencer. Here's what Matthew records about how powerful his influence was. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. That whole map I just showed you. Matthew's saying, yeah, all of these people, all of them were going down there. And don't rush by the detail because we're not talking about some crazy guy that's attracting a few fellow conspiracy theorists. This is not what's happening here. All of Judea, the whole region of the Jordan, even if you want to dismiss that as hyperbole, right? If even only a portion of it is true, you're talking about tens and tens and tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people are making the trip east from, from Jerusalem all the way out to, to the Jordan River. You're going to see this. Look, we put up the second. I zoomed in on this map. So here you've got, if you see number nine there, that's, that's Jerusalem. They're all making their way out here to the Jordan River, that blue number four. Tens and tens of thousands of people are making their way out there, right? By the way, you can go make your way there too. If you go and you can go see where Jesus was baptized, take a look at this. There's a picture I've got for you. There's a picture. There it is. That's it. Somehow doesn't look as cool as you would think it would, which is kind of cool because that's the way history tends to be, right? You get there and you're like, huh, this is what I would have thought a river would look like, I guess, if I showed up at it. So let me show you why John's message was getting all these people to come east out of Jerusalem, out to the middle of nowhere. It's because John's message and fame was a big problem. It was a big problem then, and we're going to get into why. And I think if you're honest and you know this story that I'm about to introduce you to, it's a big problem now. It's a big problem for me. It's a big problem for you. Here, here's how Luke explains it, right? This, this Greek physician that wrote the orderly account. He went into all the country. Again, this is not a local story. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's going all around preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's problem number one. Because there is a system that exists for the forgiveness of sins. And it's not baptism. That's what those people do. They need to get baptized. We Jews, we have a system for this. It's the sacrificial system. It all takes place in the temple, back in Jerusalem, back in the city, not out here. Some of you know part of the Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant that God established with Moses. It was the covenant that everybody in Jerusalem was living under. And, and that covenant that, that set up the sacrificial system I mean, that system was doing quite well, especially for the people at the top of it that were in charge of it, who made their living and who got their identity and their power out of it. And here is John out there in the middle of nowhere, attracting gigantic crowds. And breaking news, he's saying to them, it's not just the Gentiles who need to be washed. He's going, we all need to be changed. We all need to be forgiven of our sins. It's all of us, Jews and Gentiles, that, that need to be forgiven. He's proclaiming that the old way of doing it through the sacrificial system back in the temple is no longer working. In fact, the entire system is corrupt. If you want to get right with God, don't worry about all those guys back in the temple. You need to come out here and see me. If you want to get right with God, don't worry about them. You need to come out here. Which, as we'll see in a moment, was a little bit of a problem if you're running the temple. Why were all these people coming to John? Why is he gaining so much tra traction? Why were people so, in a sense, excited? Well, because it had been 400 years since, if, you, if your last book in your Old Testament is the prophet of Malachi. And then God goes silent for 400 years. There had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. And when, so when John shows up 
and he looks kind of like Elijah, and he's ranting kind of like a prophet, people start to think, man, I think, I think this could be the guy. I, I think this guy actually could be fulfilling, well, what our great prophet Isaiah had said about, about what was to come. Luke recorded the moment this way. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is him describing who John is. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth. Now you and I read that and we're like, I've heard that before. It sounds, some, I saw it on a Christmas card once, right? He looks like Elijah. His message is kind of fit. And by the way, what was the message? They understood it. You and I miss it because we, 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 we don't know the language. Anybody remember there was an Apex Summit in San Francisco a few weeks ago? Maybe, maybe a month or two ago now? Anybody remember what they did in San Francisco right before they had this Apex Summit where all the, the kings of all the world were coming to San Francisco? Cleaned up all the streets, right? Took up all the homeless encampments off the street. What did they do? They made, they made ways, the ways. They closed the streets so that the, the kings of all the earth could make their way without any traffic, you know, to, have, don't, to take the long way around, right? They made the, the way straight, the paths easy. They filled in the potholes, cleaned up the streets. We do this for kings now. They did it then. This was well known. This is what you do when the king comes to your town. We're still doing it. Nothing has changed, right? And John, and what John is doing is he's saying in kingly language, I'm telling you there is a new king coming. This is what they did when the Romans came into town, right? When the Roman authorities would make their way in, they would do the same thing. So now John is proclaiming the coming of another king, a new ruler, and now he's not only got a problem with the, the Jewish temple guard and the, the Jewish leaders, he's got a problem with Rome and the Romans and Caesar. And there, there's one more troubling thing about his message that he's out there screaming about. Not only is a new king coming, not only is a new kingdom drawing near, here's what he said. He goes, and all people will see God's salvation. All people. This isn't about Rome. It's not about Israel. It's not about the Jews. This new king is inviting, everyone is invited into the new kingdom. All the people it's no longer just going to be limited to, to birthrights. Everybody, Jew and Gentile, Greek and Roman, everyone's going to see God's salvation. And if you're Jewish and this is your birthright, this is what sets you apart. This is your identity as a child of Abraham. If you believe this is your exclusive gift, it's likely you're not too thrilled about sharing it with what you perceive to be Gentile dogs. John's got a lot of problems. In fact, Jesus' disciple John, right? Right in the middle of talking about John the Baptist, he pauses. It's like he remembers. He pauses in the middle of talking about John the Baptist, and he goes, speaking of Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but he didn't, his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent. It's not a birthright issue anymore. Nor of human decision or a husband's will but born of God. John would go on, to, in fact, to describe this new kingdom and, and this new king, the, this one that John the Baptist was talking about. John would look back and would describe it this way. He would say, out of his fullness, Jesus's, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, the Ten Commandments, the 600-plus commandments which had grown up around them in that, in that century, the law which the temple guard stood watch over, the law which had been used by those who could benefit it from it to keep people who were far from God far from him, the law which had been the backbone of the existing covenant between God and his people, it was an if-then covenant. If you do this, I will bless you. If you don't, then I won't. That came through Moses. But John was out there saying, there's something new coming now. It's grace. It's unmerited, undeserved favor, and it's truth. There is actually nothing you can do to save yourself. Your brokenness is so much deeper than you are even aware of. You can't be good even if you try. 
Yet despite it all, John's out there proclaiming, you are, you're in more trouble than you could ever have, have thought, but you are, you are more loved than you could ever imagine. There is a new king and a new kingdom. So back to the story, at some level, people are now beginning to pour out of the temple in Jerusalem, and they're, they're heading east to the Jordan. This guy is a problem. So in the first century, what do you do with problems? The same thing we do in the 21st century. We shut them up. We don't want to hear from them. We get rid of them. And so John records that, that this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Word gets back to the temple, and they send some folks down there, some, some emissaries in a chance, to go ahead and, and f- check John out, find out who he is. Is this just another, is this just another wannabe Messiah? And John sees them coming. In fact, he knows what they're thinking because he's been confronted by the question time and time again already. Enter the scene. These religious leaders, there's tens of thousands of people on the banks of this river. And here come these religious leaders making their way up to the front. People, in a sense, start to clear the path for them because they know who they are, right? And they know the trouble that that could get caused. And John, as soon as he sees the, the crowd starting to widen for them, John, John immediately addresses their concerns before they can even say, say a word. He knew why they were there. Quote, he did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And so now these guys, they've been sent on a mission by the priests to go get an answer to who this guy is, who he thinks he is. They go on. They asked him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Because you seem to be dressed like him. He said, I'm not. Well, are you the prophet that, that, that Malachi talked that would come b- b- before God's next big move? And he answered, no. Well, finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer, because we t- we're, just, we're just men under authority. We've got to take it back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And so John answers them with what you've already heard. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. He says, look, I'm just the guy telling you there is a new king and a new kingdom coming, and you need to get ready. You need to prepare yourself because, you know, you need to repent. You need to change the way you're thinking. You need to change the direction you're going and go in a new way. There's a new king and a new kingdom. Now, they don't really get this. They're actually not sure what message they're supposed to take back, and so they keep questioning Now, the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Well, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John goes, look, I baptize with water. But among you, among you stands one you do not know. But he's the one who's come after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John is a big deal. Tens to hundreds of thousands of people looking at him. And John goes, you don't understand. You think I'm a big deal? You got it totally wrong, man. I am nothing. You think I'm causing you guys a problem? You think Pilate is nervous? You think the, the Caesars are nervous? You think the temple is nervous? You think the priests are worried? If you think I'm a problem, this guy, this guy, I, I'm not even worthy of being his slave. You have no idea the problems that this king and his kingdom are going to cause all of you. So, they head back to the temple. Not really sure what what to say, right? Their message is, is somewhat disturbing. And so, in a moment, right, these guys, the temple, the, the temple leaders hear about this and they think, well, we're going to have to put an end to it and And so they decide they're going to handle it themselves. It it seems that a bigger entourage of now the most powerful leaders in the temple, they head down, they make the trip east all the way out of Jerusalem down to the middle of nowhere, right? They get all the powerful leaders together. There's a big entourage that heads down. The crowds, of course, see these guys coming. There's probably music and all the rest as they make their way. And and, and I'm guessing that people are even worried that they're now going to be seen here. Right? I'm going to be seen here. and if These guys see me. What's it going to mean when I go back to Jerusalem? What's it going to mean when I try to get right with God in the temple through the old temple system? Fear begins to grow in the air. The crowd begins to part. John sees them coming. 
And you know what he says? Matthew records it this way. When, he, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Can you imagine? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who warned you to flee from what's coming, this new king and new kingdom? Who tipped you off? Why are you here? And th then comes the troubling part of John's message for them, and I think if we're honest, at least, and for me, maybe for you, because if John's message doesn't disturb us, then we don't get John's message. We should read it and just be as disturbed as his first century audience was. Here, here's the part that you and I, I think, have to deal with in, in modern day Christianity. John looks at them at all and goes, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, your lives should reflect your repentance. Your lives, you law keepers, you're so concerned about keeping of the law, and there is no fruit coming out of your life at all. Repentance is not changing your behavior. Repentance is your heart and your mind and your core and your soul changing what it is it trusts in. That then will produce fruit in your life. It just comes. You don't even have to try. When you repent, if you truly repent, you will change. You will have fruit. Some of you know Paul goes on in the New Testament to, to talk about the fruit of the Spirit that we receive when, when we really put our trust in, in Christ. And John goes on. He, go, he goes, and don't tell me. That's kind of the way I would put it. Do not think you can say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. Well, we're, you don't understand. We're... Abraham is our father. We're the, we're, we're the Jewish people. And he looks at me and goes, I tell you that, that out of these, these pointing to stones, out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. In other words, I don't want to break it to you, but, but faith is not a birthright. You are not okay because of the system that you find yourself in or the covenant. You think that this covenant that you're, you're trying to obey is making you right. In fact, in regard to the covenant that they were under, the keeping of all of the laws that made them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the professional good and right, here's, here's what John says to them. He goes, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The old ways of doing things are all going away. The Mosaic covenant is coming to an end. Being made righteous by being good is over. The days of feeling comfortable with the concept of, here's how I would produce, I'd say this to us. The days of being comfortable with the concept of, but I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. Those days are over. And this is where the message gets troubling for you and I, because most of us, in terms of our understanding and our relationship with God, we find ourselves in one camp or another. One camp is the I'm a good person camp. Many of us, before we've truly understood who Jesus is, we are in the I'm a good person camp. I'm good with God because he wants me to be good, and all in all, I am good. If you look at the scale, I've, I'm more good than bad, so I think I'm all right. In fact, I mean, God owes me because I, I'm good. Now, if you're in that camp and you're trying to relate to God through your goodness, through his laws, right, John has troubling news. The axe is at the root. Those days are over. And by the way, it never really was supposed to work that way anyway. You misunderstood it the whole time. But then, this is the piece that's got to be troubling for, for the other portion of us in the room. You know, habituation, semantic, semantic situation here. We hear this and we think, Oh, well, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine, because I'm a Christian. I, I understand grace. I understand that I'm not, I'm, my relationship with God isn't based on anything I do. I understand that I'm under grace. I'm not saved by my works, I'm saved by faith. So I prayed the prayer, I accepted Jesus into my heart, and so I'm good now, right? Like, that's, I'm good, I did that, that was years ago. On that front, I got it checked off. I'm just kind of, I'm, now I'm just waiting for my blessing, 
And I would argue that John's message to those of us who live on the gray side of, of, of this message is, well, it's the same message that Jesus would go on to declare. It was the one that Paul would declare. It was the one that Jesus' brother James would declare. If that's true, show me your fruit. Show me your works. Show me that your faith has changed you. Jesus said, right, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Jesus said, who are my brothers and my sisters? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister. Would John not say to you and me that claim, well, I'm good because I prayed the prayer. Hey, God could raise up Christians out of these stones. Produce fruit in accordance with your prayer. This message is troubling. It was discomforting. It was then, and it is now. How do we know? Because they began to ask questions. If you're sitting there going, what does that mean for me? That's exactly what everybody that stood there said. What does that mean for me? Maybe I've, under, I've misunderstood. What, what does it mean? And here's what the crowd asked. Well, what should we do then? As a pastor, there's lots of folks that tend to ask me if we're living in the last days. My answer is, I know I am. <laughs> right? get to a certain age and you start going, I am living in my last days. And I think I know what's behind the question. The question is, is like, should we be getting ready for something? Should we be getting prepared? Are we in the last days? Should we be, we be preparing for the last days? Friends, this is John's message. Do you not see that? If anybody has ever asked you, you know, are we living in the last days? Are you prepared? That's John's message. He didn't want people who, th who thought they were fine with God. He didn't want them to, to miss God. And so say, we're in the last days. And, and again, I know I am. How do you prepare to meet God? Prepare to meet your maker. How do you get ready to meet this new king? How do you get ready for, to be ushered into a new kingdom? Do you know how you prepare? It's been here the whole time, and I, I want, I mean, get ready. I don't want you to miss it. You don't want to wind up, Jesus told a parable about this, by the way, called the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. There's all these people that are like, well, Jesus, we knew you. And he's like, no, I didn't know you. And, well, you know, when did we do any of that for Jesus, for you, Jesus? He's like, oh, whenever you did this. John's about to tell you how you get ready. What should we do then, the crowd said. Notice, they did not say, what should, we what should we believe then? They didn't say, what should we know then? They didn't say, how hard do I have to try? How good do I have to be? The question was, and I would argue still is, what should we do to prepare for the king? And they were, and maybe you are right now, waiting for a religious answer. Yeah, what is it? What is it? Like, what do I have to do, right? Like... Uh, how, much, how much do I have to, to give away, in a sense? Do anybody know what you need to do to prepare? If you're out there and you're going, you know, this whole Israel thing, and I'm worried these could be the last days. Anybody know what you have to do to prepare for the coming of the king? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. What? What? I mean, John, you, John, we all, look, John, we all came out here. We all, it's like a full day, and we had to find a place to stay, and the hotels are all booked up. And we're out here, and I, you know, you, you tore down the whole temple thing, and all those guys came out there. You had me nervous. You're talking about dismissing religious structures, priests and rabbis, this axe at the root thing, all this baptizing. I... I want to be ready for the coming of the king. And, and what do I have to do? Share? Like share, share, that's fair. That's all there was to it. That's how I get ready. My mother was right. How do you get ready? Don't I have to pray, pray something? Don't I have to read something or do or sacrifice something or, or stop doing this? And John is saying, and again, quite controversially, if you want to get ready for the king, if you want to be part of a new kingdom, you start today. The kingdom for you starts today on earth as it is in heaven, living out what this king is about to do 
Well, he's about to do it for everyone. If you see anyone in need and you can do something about it, you should do it. This is what Jesus is about to do for everyone on the grandest scale possible. He's about to give himself to meet the need of the whole world. If you want to get ready, start practicing. Then you won't miss it when it comes. You'll go, ah, I see it. And so again, John is such a big deal. People everywhere, everybody begins to wonder, what about me? What about me? Even tax collectors, Luke writes, came to be baptized. And tax collectors, they're the worst of the sinners, right? If, if you know the story of them. There was always the, the sinners and the tax collectors. Teacher, the tax collectors say, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Look, he goes, I know you can collect as much as you want. I know that's how you make your living. But I'm telling you, I know it's legal. I know it's expected. I know you're living well by doing it, but you know what I want you to do? I want you to stop. Don't use your power and your authority and your position. Don't leverage it for your benefit and yourself anymore. Stop stealing, which, by the way, is one of the Ten Commandments, one of those laws that people were trying to live under, except this time Jesus is trying to, or John's trying to teach him, this will come naturally to you once you repent, once you, once you become a citizen of a new kingdom. But what about us? Another crowd, group in the crowd says. Some of the soldiers asked him, what should we do? He goes, look, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. When we go to Guatemala, many of my friends that work in the ministries we partner with down there, they've been arrested just so they have to bribe. You know, they get in a traffic accident and they can realize one of the people has money. People in the Guatemalan police force will arrest them until they can bribe their way out. Nothing has changed. John's going, I know that you can do it. I know that it's fine. You won't get any trouble. Stop doing it. Stop taking advantage of people. If you want to be ready, right? If you want to be ready, here is what God is about to do. God is about to sacrifice his son for the benefit of everybody. God is about to leverage all of his power, which is all of the power, and he's going to leverage it not to benefit himself, but he's going to, going to use it to, to benefit the whole world. Stop Stop trying to increase your pay. I love how Luke sums it up. He goes, with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. The good news to them, discomforting and disquieting and upsetting. The ax is at the root. The good news of being good with God by the law or simply misunderstanding the message of grace, forgetting about the message of truth, it's good news. God loves you so desperately. And you're going to get to him through the love of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, not by your works or your deeds or even your one-time prayers. You're right with God because of what he did for you and not what you did for him. Repent of all of those things and let the fruit begin to flow. This is the heart of the king. It is what he has done for you, and he's asking us to do the same. This is the way of the kingdom. Don't miss it because if you miss it, you might miss him. Many of the people at that day at the River Jordan are the same people that showed up yelling, crucify him, a couple years later. They missed it. It's a crazy story. It's a discomforting story. I know it's one you might want to dismiss. Ah, I don't know if I need to worry about that. I'm a good person. Ah, I'm fine. I prayed the prayer. It's all good. I mean, maybe you're here this morning. You're, you're like, look, I, I don't even know if I believe everything that's in the Bible. Who knows if this guy even existed, or, or maybe they got his message wrong. Maybe it got convoluted over the years and mistaken. How serious, what you're talking about is quite serious, John. How serious do you want me to take this message? Well, Matthew and Mark and Peter and James and Luke and John all said this guy was such a big deal. This message was so serious, they all recorded it. Jesus would go on to say that those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus thought about his message. How about this, though? This is pretty cool. I'll give you one last map for the day. This is a picture of the Madaba mosaic map. It's the earliest depiction of the Holy Land. It goes back to the 6th century A.D., so in, in the years 500. It was part of a floor, a mosaic, that they found in an early Byzantine church. If you look, you can see in the river those two fish facing each other. 
That's that even in, in the sixth century. That was there showing the baptism site on the east side of the Jordan where Jesus was baptized, where John baptized. Pretty cool. This is how early the message can be dated. This is how important it is. It wound up on this map, on this floor. Now, maybe you go, all right, well, fine. That was in the 500s. There could have been lots of translation errors about John's message between, between then. And plus, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe you think, ah, I'm not sure I even believe these Bible writers. Maybe they were just kind of massaging the message to prove their point. Luke, this first-rate historian, he ends the story of John this way. He goes, but when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other thing, evil things he had done, Herod added this to all the evil things he'd done. He locked John up in prison. Now, what he's talking about there is a story in antiquity. It's a, it's a historical true story. Herod, son of Herod the Great, who killed all of those children in Bethlehem, he divorced his wife so he could marry his brother's wife. And when the wife he tried to put away went to her father, who was an Arab king named Adarus, this king Adarus went to war with Herod over this. And he thwarted, I mean, he wiped out Herod's armies. Some of you know there was a Jewish historian named Josephus. Not a Christian. Not trying to back up any of the Bible. Josephus, in the year 90, began to write the history of his people, chronicling it all the way back to Adam. You can pick this book up. You can go read it today. It's called Jewish Antiquities. Josephus records that event about what ha happened with Herod and the armies. And when he does, do you know who he also talks about? John the Baptist. Because he was that big a deal. You couldn't record the history of the Jewish people without recording something about John the Baptist. And here's what he writes 60 years after the death of John the Baptist. People that were there at the River Jordan are still alive when Josephus writes this. Now, some of the Jews thought the destruction of Herod's army came from God as a punishment of what Herod had done against John, who was called the Baptist. For Herod had killed this good man, and here comes the message. This is not even recorded by anybody trying. This is recorded by an extra-biblical source, somebody that wasn't a believer. For Herod killed this good man who had commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, righteousness towards one another, and piety towards God. Even Josephus got the message right. Are we in the end times? I am. How do you get ready? Repent. And start, start producing the fruit of repentance in your life. Because ultimately it will determine what king you serve and what kingdom you wind up in. Let's stand and close the song.